0: Our kids always hated it, (laughs) just to be honest with you. But they did it nonetheless. Uh, Like I said before, we're going to be wrapping up our series on Reformation Focus. Uh, We've already done Sola Scriptura and Sola Grazia and and Sola Fide, and we'll be turning today, first of all, to uh, Soli Christus or Solus Christus and then later on to Sole Deo Gloria, uh, and let me just say this: If you're ever talking to anyone and they say, and you say, "Well, I go to Springs Presbyterian Church," and if you know the, the term "reform" comes in the picture uh, at any at any point it probably would be a good idea if you could take these five things and just basically explain to them where you're coming from and not only that, why you're coming from where you're coming from. Uh, and again, I just want to challenge us this morning to, to be in prayer, not only for a revival in the church today, but in a reformation today. Because these things that we've talked about in such detail, there are, there's a large percentage, probably the, the majority of Christians that really don't understand the biblical teaching in regard to these particular aspects, important aspects, every one of them, of the Christian faith. We are to be lights into the darkness, and that means the world. But at the same time, we need to be uh, encouragers uh, and challengers of one another. And that, that means this. It means that we need to be challenged as well. And I hope we don't have the idea that we are the ones that have everything figured out and everyone else is kind of in the dark, and what we're supposed to do is now enlighten them to the truth. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, I'm just trying to tell us that there is a distinction, in a sense, between our understanding of the way of salvation and that which you're going to find with many, many other Christians. First of all, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Put things in context. Jesus is ascended back into heaven. He's commissioned the, uh, the disciples, uh, Peter being among those. Uh, to go and uh, be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the world. They're doing this. Uh, This is uh, the second sermon that actually Peter preaches, and he's preaching it to a group of people who are Jewish unbelievers, some of whom had something at least to do with the killing of Jesus. And this is where he kind of brings all that he's saying to a conclusion. Where he says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 16th century church. As we said before, these things had fallen into almost non-existence. At the very best, they were very blurry. Certainly not focal points of what the church taught and believed and practiced and encouraged its members to do. We understand this, that in the 16th century church, the church was looked upon as being the authority of God on earth. And not, not only the church, but the person who was, in fact, at the head of the church, was seen to be the greatest of authorities of God here on earth. So one of the main points was sola scriptura, like we talked about, and that is to get back to the Bible. The Bible is God's authority, and, 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 and everything that the church believes and practices needs to be derived from Scripture, not from what man says. But from what and by God has said. There's a sense in which people have begun to believe that salvation was at least sustained by their own good works, and those were particular works that the church subscribed to people. They had fallen from the idea that it was by faith, and faith alone, that they were saved. And we're heaven bound. If I were to ask you a question, and that question would be this What would you say is the end of the gospel? What is the primary function and purpose? Of the gospel. I would imagine the, the, the most, the greatest majority of Christians would say, for the purpose of saving sinners. But I want to challenge you with something that is far deeper and far greater than that. It's for God's glory, for the glory of God, that the glory of God would be known. The ancient world was filled with idolatry, pagan idols that people bowed down to that were made out of stone and wood and metal in every form you can possibly imagine. The vast majority of people were polytheists. In other words, they didn't worship one single god, they worshiped a whole host of gods. And they believed that the whole purpose of sacrifice was to appease the wrath of those particular gods so that they would no longer be angry any longer with you or with others around you even in Israel if you if you consider in particular books like the books of judges and in 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings you find a people who are not dedicated to the Lord their God exclusively but a God, but a people who uh, had turned to foreign idols of the uh, of the nations in the land of Canaan that, that, that God had warned them against and told them not to fall into this trap and they did it nonetheless and so at the very best the average Israelite back in those days didn't practice true uh, Judaism, they practiced syncretism, where they, maybe they did worship the one and true God in a sense in some of the time, but at the same time, they were also worshiping all these other gods. And if you think about when they came out of Egypt, when they came out of Egypt, they brought their foreign idols and gods with them, and they were warned over and over again. Now, we live in a day-to-day that's a little bit different in a lot of ways, Right? We have electricity. One hundred and twenty years ago they didn't. I mean our lives in a lot of ways are very different than they've been ever in the whole history of mankind. We have all kinds of advantages that people have never ever had in 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 man's history that are that are things that we, we they're so common for us that we just take them for granted. Until we have a hurricane and we don't have electricity for four or five days, right? Then, then we understand how really blessed we are to have uh, that particular commodity. But uh, are you still thinking about that? Are you still thinking about it every time you turn on a light switch? What it's like not to have it? And, and are you appreciative of it? And are you glorifying God because of these great things that we have been given? Well, what would you say would be the condition of the world today? As far as religion goes, have you ever heard the phrase "religious pluralism it means a plurality of religions. If you think worldwide and even on the, even within the United States today, there are many, many, many different religions have very different understandings about God or gods in some cases and uh, and what the expectations are for us and this and that. And We are steeped today in a sense. We're steeped in that same world that is filled up with pagan idols, false gods. But also with religious pluralism comes along the idea that we're supposed to be receptive of all those different religions and see them in a sense as being on the same ground as we are. You've heard people say that there's value in all of the world religions. And and some people will say this, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. or, Or it doesn't matter what your faith is in as long as you have faith in something. That's religious pluralism. And you've heard people make those comments. And there's possibility that some of us in the same room have made those same comments ourselves. The idea that all roads lead to heaven. What Peter says to all of that is hogwash. It's a lie. There is one way to God and one way alone. Remember this, he was speaking to an audience who believed in a sense they had a savior already. His name was Abraham. And they believed that by him, through him, through his blood relation to him, that they were set apart and part of the chosen people of God. See, there's a sense in which they didn't believe that they needed Jesus because they had Abraham. He was, in a sense, their savior. Let me just say this to you this morning. If religious pluralism is true, then Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic. Those are the only two possible conclusions you can come to. He was either lying or he was just flat crazy. After all, he is the one who said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And no one, no one, not a single person, not a single cult, Uh, soul comes to the Father but through me. Daily we are being encouraged to be more receptive to the ideas of the world and even to accept them to some degree. There are people who go by the name of Christian. There are people who claim the name of Christ, who do not recognize his exclusive right when it comes to salvation. Some people believe that the way that we look at things, our understanding is archaic and it's outdated because we've, we've evolved not only as a human race, but we've evolved socially and in every other way you can possibly imagine. And the things that were not accepted years ago weren't accepted because people just did not have the enlightenment and the understanding that we have today. But things are different today. We know better. We know better than to believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life only. Certainly, a good and a great and a loving God would, would, would give everyone a pathway to him, and it may be through Buddhism or Hinduism or this-ism or, or thatism. ism There are people sitting in churches today that have adopted that mindset, thinking that they are doing something noble and thinking they're doing something good for those particular people. We need to understand something. That when we accept these things, we're not doing anything good for anybody. The worst thing that you and I can do is encourage people to believe falsehood. The worst thing that we can do is to continue or to encourage them to continue to worship without Christ being in the middle of that worship. Because we know that there's only one way that worship is received by God from people, and that is through Jesus. See, there is no way to worship God, truly worship God, unless Christ is at the center of it. It comes down to this, my friends, and that is Jesus is either everything or he is Nothing. You can't have it in the middle. It cannot be in between. Either he is everything or he really amounts to being nothing. As we said before, the first four of these solas have everything to do with the last one. The last one basically, like I said before, is the crescendo. It's it's the it's the point at which all these others have been building toward from the very beginning. And that is that all of these things be for a reason, and the reason be for the glory of God. Peter writes in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 11, Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were. The utterances are the word of God. Is what it says literally. Whoever serves, let him do as by the strength which God supplies, do as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's a prayer. It's a benediction. Do you understand what amen means? It means may it be, may it truly be. As I began this morning, I would be willing to bet you the vast majority of Christians, if you ask them what, what the purpose, the chief purpose is for the plan of salvation, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would say to you that it's for the purpose of saving sinners. I would say that that, in a sense, is unbiblical. You want to know what the real purpose of it all is for? The, the purpose of the gospel is for the glorification of God. If you're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the very first question? What is the chief end of man? Is it, is it for what purpose? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is what our Reformed brothers and sisters would have said. They wouldn't have said what people are saying today. Not that it's all about people, but rather that it's all about God. Do you understand there's a sense in which what the gospel does, it enables you and I to worship God the way he deserves to be worshipped. It enables us to glorify God the way in which he deserves to be glorified. And without it, that would not happen. You think about glory as this, the glory of God, as it's revealed to us in the Bible and the in the Old Testament. Very often, is depicted as, as this brilliant, bright light, or sometimes as a cloud. You think about the uh, the, the the column of uh, of fire and smoke that preceded Israel as they were coming out of Egypt and went ahead of them all of those forty years in the wilderness. The glory of God going forth before his people. You think about the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple and, 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 and the and the narratives on on both of those, they end on the same point. And the the end the point is this is is if when Israel had Come together, and they've collected all the stuff that they needed to have to build all this stuff. And they went ahead and they made all the different articles of the tabernacle, and then the later the temple. And they built the building, and they did this, and they did that. And then they were having this dedication service at the end of it to celebrate all that had been done, and all of that. That we're told in both cases that the glory of God filled the tabernacle, the glory of God filled the temple. And in doing that, God was saying to them that you have done this for me and I accept what you have done. When was the last time you saw something like that? I can remember when we had our dedication service here almost 24 years ago now. Not Not in this building. I guess the building is probably more like 18 years old or something like that. Uh, but we'll be having our anniversary in February for 24 years from the beginning. Then we had the dedication service. On the, we had a dedication service for the property. Then we had a dedication service for the building. Do you remember the glory of God filling this room? This brilliant bright light that you couldn't even see, that, and this cloud that kind of surrounded all of us? Do you remember that? Were you here? You should have been because it was really great. (laughs) No, we understand this, that there's there's a difference in a sense in which God manifests himself differently in different ways at different times and all to his own glory. But I know this, if you were here, you knew something special was taking place on that day. It wasn't just that we we just built a house or something like that, and we were moving in, and we're just happy to have it, and this, that, and the other. We had a sense that this is the place that God had given us to come here to worship him. And we rejoiced in it. If you want to see the glory of God... look to Jesus. See, the glory of God is revealed to you and I in a way through Jesus Christ that we would never understand it, that we would never, ever see it. You want to see the glory of God, look to Jesus. John writes, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. More than likely, what he's referring to there is the transfiguration where Jesus took James, uh, or took John and James and Peter. To the top of that mountain and we're not even sure what mountain it is and, and we're told that Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes with this brilliant white and all of that and, and Moses and Elijah came, came and they were talking with Jesus and then they talk about this cloud. See, John remembers that. That's what John is thinking about. I would be willing to bet you a thousand bucks that they have seen Jesus in his glory and at that time, in a way that no one else ever had. Remember the story of Moses on Mount Sinai where he says to God, let me see your glory, please let me see your glory. You wonder why and probably being a sinner like we are, it was probably because he wanted the absolute proof without any deniability that God was really there, that God was the one he was really talking to, that there really is a God. He wanted to see it for himself. If you're familiar with the story, you know that God says, no man can see my glory and live. So what he tells him is this, is there's a cleft in the rock, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in that rock, and I'm going to put my hand over it to protect you because you can't see my face. You can't see the front of me. But as I've passed on by, then you can look at my backside, basically, is what it says. That's an interesting thing, that no one can see God and live and we maybe, maybe we wonder why. And that's one of the, one of the reasons is this is because in, the, in scriptures very often the glory of God is described as a consuming fire in the presence of sin and sinners. That God hates so sin, his sin so much that sin in his presence evaporates away to nothing. There are many promises, my friends, that come to us through the gospel, and one of those is this, is we will see him as he is, that we haven't yet, but one of these days, you and I will see Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the fullness of of their glory. And the only way that is possible is if sin be taken away from us completely. Absolutely. No remnant of it. No vestige of it. No, no evidence of it at all left. Just righteousness and holiness. And being a true reflection of the glory in its fullness of God. It's what's called Glorification. We were talking about that in pastor's class this morning a little bit. Does that sound good? Is it something that you think about? Is it something that you reflect upon regularly? And let me ask you this. When was the last time you thought, you know what, I need to do this, that, or the other. I need to go and talk to my neighbor about the gospel. Or I need to just help this person out on the side of the road because there's cars broken down, etc., etc., etc. And and what would be the reason for? that God would be glorified in it. Do you understand that the way that we see the glory of God is through Jesus Christ, but the way that we help other people to see the glory of Christ is to be Christ-like in their presence? We need to change our motivation Because I think very often the motivation, the reason that we do things is not really for God's glory. Very often I truly think it's for our own glory, for our own sense of advancement. Seriously, I mean, how many times do you do something and there's this little voice in the back of your head that's saying, God is really going to love you for doing this one. This is, a really, this is another brownie point in that, that little book up there in heaven that God is keeping with my name in it and all the good things that I've done in his name. See, we're still all about us. We're still most focused on what this has to do with me and what is the outcome of this particular thing in regard to myself. We need to get beyond that. And understand that there's something that eclipses all of that. And that is the glory of God. That we do what we do for him. And he's glorified in the process. Can you imagine what it will be like? The first time you you lay eyes on Jesus. Theologians talk about it as a beatific vision. Have you ever even thought about that? You know, you're going to die. What is your first vision of Jesus going to be? How are you going to respond to it? Just think about John in Revelation with Jesus. After his resurrection and ascension, he had this vision of him, and that's where the book of Revelation came from. And, and, and John saw, saw this vision of Jesus, and he fell down on the ground before him like a dead man out of fear. Maybe that's how we'll react. Maybe, maybe then we will finally see, we will finally understand the magnitude uh, of, the, of the crimes that we have committed against God over and over and over and over again, even as believers. Maybe Jesus, in a sense, will be a reflection that reveals to us finally the depth of our depravity. Maybe that'll happen. The neat thing about it is this. is because of all that Jesus teaches us, we can be sure of one thing. That he will come and pick us up. All to his glory. He is something. I mean, the more you know of him, the more you're mystified by him. The more you see, the more you understand there is far more to see. He is something. He is something like, and there's nothing like him there never has been and there never ever will be someone who is God, a being who is God and man at the same time who truly breaks the gap between us and God. He brings sinner and God together in, in close-knit relationship with one another. Just remember this as I close this morning. You've heard me say this a million times. Don't ever forget it because people will tell you this religious pluralism. What they're telling you is Christianity is just another religion. It's just like all the others. But there are at least two ways that Christianity is very different from every other religion. And one of them is this. is Every other religion is works-based. It's based upon what you do for yourself. It's based upon you earning your own way. The second one is this. Every other religion keeps God at a distance. Christianity brings God up close and very personal. It's the only religion that teaches you, as far as I can, I can think, that you can have a loving, thriving Relationship with the God who created you and who has redeemed you. So, what makes more sense? Idols of stone and metal and wood? Modern day idols of secular pluralism? Or the gospel? to the glory of God.